Chapter 7, South Africa A new world was on the other side of those double doors, a vast sea of white shirt suitcases and organized pandemonium. A white-haired lady with a gentle smile directed Sam to a table, and there he handed in his papers. He was shown where to deposit his bags, and before long he was sitting in a large hall with nearly a thousand other prospective missionaries. The mood was apprehensive and yet calmly determined. He sensed a Holy Spirit warming his soul, and he felt at peace. Music began to play, and within minutes they were singing, Ye Elders of Israel. The voices of missionaries drowned out the organ in a rendition so enthusiastic that it sent chills of joy up Sam's spine. A white-haired man took the pulpit and introduced himself as Elder Whitehall, mission president of the mission home. He heartily welcomed the new missionaries and instructed them. He then turned the time over to Elder Bruce Armaconkey, who delivered a stern yet inspiring message about personal worthiness, dedication, service, and personal integrity. He bore his strong testimony, and the words reverberated in Sam's soul. The new missionaries were bused to the BYU campus and assigned a room in the ancient Knight Hall dorm. After meeting their new companions, they ate dinner and studied the scriptures for two hours. Finally, they fell exhausted into bed. The next day began at 6 a.m. with a shower, scripture study, companion prayers, and breakfast. Each newer missionary companion <clears throat> had been there for at least three weeks and knew the routine. These seniors enthusiastically instructed their greenie companions in their duties. By 9 a.m. they all gathered into a room no larger than 12 feet square that smelled of furniture polish. All four walls of the room, floor and ceiling, were wood. The room would have been oppressive if not for the brightly overhead lighting. Twelve elders were there, six companions, and their respective greenies. A skinny, serious-faced young man <clears throat> stood before the missionaries and introduced himself as their zone leader. Elder Tolman was a returned missionary from South Africa and would spend the next eight weeks teaching them Afrikaans, the language of their mission. He also informed them that they would be learning the discussions in both English and Afrikaans since the mission field was bilingual and both languages would be used for teaching. This brought a groan <clears throat> from the new missionaries and a sympathetic chuckle from the seniors. Elder Tolman asked everyone to stand. He said, Good morning, in Afrikaans, and had everyone repeat it loudly. He then told them what it meant. They repeated the phrase several times. He taught them, How are you? Which they repeated endlessly in loud voices. This went on for three hours. By the time they broke for lunch, they were able to conduct a rudimentary door approach in Afrikaans. It was amazing, and the new elders enthusiastically practiced their new language skills at lunch. After lunch, they repeated the process and learned lines from the first discussion. By break time at 4 p.m., they could say the first two exchanges in the discussion, including Brother Brown's unrealistic uh, golden responses. From 4 to 5.30 p.m., they exercised vigorously and took a shower. Dinner was at 6, with more language training from 7 to 9 p.m. Scripture study and journal writing were from 9 to 10 p.m., with lights out at 10 p.m., Every other day, they had a devotional with a general authority. Sundays were a spiritual feast with more language training. <clears throat> Monday was preparation day, and they had four hours in the morning to roam BYU campus, write letters home, and otherwise unwind. The rest of the day was language training. By the end of the eight weeks, Sam was supercharged spiritually. His prayers had found a dimension of communication he had never thought possible, and his bosom burned with the presence of the Holy Spirit. His 
<clears throat> whole desire was to do the Lord's work and nothing else mattered. Emily and Cheryl, who had both enrolled at BYU, came to see him off at the airport. They hugged Sam, or held his hands, the entire two hours they had together. His family had departed weeks earlier for the long drive to Alaska. His parents had each written him a long letter with instructions that he was to open them on the plane and not before. When it came time to leave, Emily gave him a big hug and kiss. Cheryl held him tightly and kissed him hard. That surprised him and took his breath away. She pressed a letter into his hand and spun away as tears streamed down her face. Emily st stayed to cheerfully wave as Sam walked down the ramp. Sam's flight was scheduled to take him from Salt Lake City through Chicago, New York, and London. After almost a full day in London, he boarded another plane, which made several mysterious refueling stops in the Middle East at places the pilot claimed he was not at liberty to name. From there, it was a long flight to Jan Smoot's airport in Johannesburg, South Africa. <clears throat> when Sam warily stepped off the plane three days later, he could not believe he had finally arrived. For three days, he had not slept anywhere but sitting up on planes. The saying popped into his head, no matter where you go, there you are. He knew it was silly, but South Africa seemed much more real than he had expected. In his mind, his mission started the moment that he had set foot in Africa. But now that he had arrived, there seemed to be a conspicuous absence of heralding angels or a pillar of fire over the airport. It was just another hot, muggy place, and he was the same farm boy as he ever was. Though much more tired, hungry, and dirty, his suit smelled and his shirts seemed permanently glued to his back. Four missionaries met Sam and his companions at the airport, shook their hands unceremoniously, and herded them into several vans. They crowded inside and drove a considerable distance through the bustling city of Johannesburg. Finally, they entered a quiet neighborhood filled with huge homes. The elder driving the van explained, When Israel became a nation again after the Yom Kippur War, many Jewish people in South Africa sold their homes dirt cheap and moved to Jerusalem. Homes were sold for a tenth of their value at the time. The church bought a Jewish mansion for almost nothing, and it has served as the mission home ever since. <clears throat> Sam later learned that there were a few economies in the world like South Africa. Because of the rich natural resources and almost an unlimited supply of cheap labor, by 1972, there were more millionaires per capita in South Africa by almost double than in the United States. South Africa had almost no middle class. No One was either mind-boggling rich or groveling poor. <clears throat> what middle class there was fell to those who chose a profession, such as lawyers, doctors, and the like. Thus, the middle class, such as it was, would be classified as wealthy in America. Anyone of any race who made their living by the sweat of their brow eked out an existence on the minimal income by living in a tiny house and doing without many of the necessities of life. With labor so incredibly available and cheap, there was no pressing need to pay anyone more than survival wages. About this time, Sam's van turned off a well-manicured lane onto a long drive of the mission home. The drive took them up a sprawling red brick mansion with expansive glass windows following ar flowing architecture and a five-car garage. They rounded a fountain and stopped before massive double wooden doors. Sam was delighted to see Elder, now President, and Sister Carlson standing on the front steps. They had not gone to the language training mission, but had come directly to South Africa. 
President Carlson shook Sam's hand exactly like every other elder, and Sister Carlson gave him a wink as she shook his hand. Sam didn't expect special treatment, but could tell they were pleased to see him. The double doors opened to a broad foyer, a massive circular staircase dominated the room, and a six-foot-wide crystal chandelier hung from the high domed ceiling. The stair treads were nearly three feet deep and rose a mere four inches with each step, which gave an almost fluid appearance to anyone climbing them. They were ushered into a huge living room with a massive white velvet couch and a ten-foot Steinway grand piano sitting in the bay window. A painting of exquisite beauty hung over the couch. It was nearly ten feet in length and pictured a peaceful pastoral scene. It depicted small stucco homes with thick thatched roofs on a picturesque dirt lane, bordered by a stream on one side and a meadow on the other. Sam later learned that the home was furnished when the church bought it, and the art and furnishings were virtually priceless. The painting that hung over the couch was worth more than they had paid for the entire mansion. Sister Carlson brought them sandwiches and milk while President Carlson interviewed them, each of them in turn. In what seemed like a brief time, Elder Mahoy was loaded on into a VW Beetle and driven several hours to his new area of Pretoria. Elder Tilly met him in front of the boarding house where they would be staying. He was tall and blonde with a perpetual smile. Sam decided almost immediately that he liked his new companion. Elder Tilly helped him unload his two bags and carry them through the house. It was oppressively dark inside with small windows and high ceilings. On their way to their room, Sam was introduced to a huge woman in a dirty apron. and inter The introduction was done in Afrikaans, and he didn't understand any of it. He shook her plump hand and assumed she was the landlady. He could see into the big kitchen and was amazed that they were cooking on a big wood-burning wood stove. Several black servant girls were scurrying around the kitchen and paid no attention to them. The missionary apartment was an attachment to the back of the house with an outside entrance. The room was about ten feet square with a painted concrete floor and a high sculpted tin ceiling. The room was unheated and had no plumbing. They had to go into the house to take showers. Sam remembered having been told this, but it finally sank <clears throat> home that they would not be cooking for themselves. They lived in a boarding house, which meant that the landlady cooked for them. He flopped on his bed and let his eyes roll up into his head. He was exhausted to the point of death, having had no true sleep in three days. Sam was no sooner horizontal than his companion prodded him in his side. He opened his bloodshot eyes to look at Elder Tilly, who had a broad grin on his face. He wasn't sure, but he suspected Elder Tilly enjoyed what he said next. Don't even think about going to sleep, Elder. We don't go to bed until 10 p.m. Dinner is in 10 minutes. Then we have several appointments and some tracting to do. Sam rolled into a sitting position and little, a little chafed, but glad to hear that missionary work was waiting to be done. Dinner consisted of two small fried beef sausages that his companion called boyerwurst, or farmer sausage, two fried tomato slices and a couple of fried onion loops, a small pile of white rice and a cup of tea. He couldn't believe his eyes or his stomach. The sausages were floating in oil, and he'd never eaten a fried tomato slice in his life. He detested rice, and he wasn't relatively certain that tea was still against the word of wisdom. He looked at his companion, who was slicing his sausage. Elder Tilly stabbed a piece of sausage while holding it, his fork upside down in his left hand. He scraped a pile of rice onto the sausage with his knife, wiped the knife on the side of the fork, and stuffed the whole lot into his mouth. 
all with the fork still in his left hand. Elder Tilly said something pleasant in Afrikaans, which Sam correctly interpreted as a compliment on the food. Sam blinked in surpri surprise and sliced a piece of sausage. He nearly gagged. The sausage had small, had no spices other than salt and a lot of pepper, and it tasted like lard. He forced himself to swallow. He then tried the rice, which was dry and tasteless. Surprisingly, t the tomatoes and onions were wonderful, but the problem was they had almost no bulk. Sam forced himself to eat everything on his plate, which wasn't much. When he finished eating, he had he felt no less hungry than before. Elder Tilly picked up his tea and stirred in milk and sugar. He leaned toward and whispered, It's herb tea, called Ruaboy, and we have permission from the First Presidency to drink it. It's almost a national drink, and it's completely healthy and tastes good. Try it. With considerable doubt, Sam watched his companion sip the tea. He felt as if he were watching him commit some grievous sin, yet a feeling of peace soon came over him, and he prepared his tea similar, similar to Elder Tilly's. He carefully sipped it and was surprised to find a sweet, full-bodied, earthy taste on his tongue. It was pleasant and he enjoyed the entire cup. He had been at home, and had he been at home or been more confident, he would have had about three more cups of the tea and several more plates of something besides lard sausage and tasteless rice. As it was, they simply thanked the landlady and departed. Pretoria was the capital city of South Africa and an important point of commerce. The wide streets were jam-packed with buses, trucks, cars, bicycles, and pedestrians. It may, uh, To make it more confusing, they were all driving on the wrong side of the street. Sam was amazed to observe that there were ten black faces to every white one, and everyone seemed to be shouting in a foreign language. He felt dizzy, tired, hungry, nauseated, and terrified all at the same time. He and Elder Tilly walked what seemed like a long distance before coming to a high-rise apartment building. One elevator serviced the odd-numbered floors, and another the even-numbered floors. The thirteenth floor was missing, since it was presumably unlucky, and there was a floor numbered twelve and a half, which was apparently an odd number, since the odd elevator stopped there. Sam found out later that some buildings skipped the thirteenth floor completely, since some of the more astute tenants figured out that twelve and a half was really just a ruse to cover up the fact that it was in reality the thirteenth floor, no matter how you numbered it, which meant it was still unlucky. In order to preserve the even-odd rhythm, there was also no fourteenth floor. In some buildings, the thirteenth floor was actually there, but was used for storage or something other than apartments. The culture's extreme preoccupation with 13 struck Sam as comical every time he saw a different attempt to avoid it. Their appointment was on the 11th floor, but the odd elevator was broken, so they rode the even elevator to the 12th floor and walked down one flight. Elder Tilly introduced Sam to Mr. Van de Merva. Uh, Sam was able to say, Pleasure to meet you in Afrikaans, and was pleased to have followed the conversation thus far. From that point on, he didn't comprehend a single word, not even one. They talked a hundred times faster than the teachers in the language training mission, and they pronounced the words differently. Moment by moment, Sam felt his heart sinking farther into his empty stomach. About uh, After about fifteen minutes, Elder Tilly turned to him and asked him in Afrikaans to continue the discussion. Sam barely understood what Elder Tilly said, but realized with a start that he was supposed to give the next concept. His brain flashed, and a vague memory surfaced. He remembered some of the words, but without confidence, he felt he couldn't do it. He turned to Elder Tilly, thanked him, and asked him to continue. 
There was perspiration on his companion's forehead. Elder Tilly frowned, nodded, and continued. After a while, the discussion became heated. In spite of not being able to understand the words, it was clear that an argument had erupted. Mr. Vandermerva fetched his Bible and began quoting scripture. A few minutes later, Elder Tilly stood without warning, politely excused himself, shook hands with Mr. Vandermerva, and walked to the door. Sam followed, not sure what had just happened. Once back in the elevator... Elder Tilly switched back to English. I guess he just wanted to argue. When the spirit of contention comes, I just leave. Some elders like to argue. We call it bashing, but I refuse to do it. I'm here to teach the gospel, not to argue about it. Sorry about not doing my concept in there. I was lost and I didn't understand a thing you two were saying, Sam admitted. Don't worry. It took me weeks to begin to understand what was going on. The LTM gives you a false sense of language. It will click for you. Our other appointment is a flu few blocks away, and we need to hurry. She's an English-speaking sister. She had the first three discussions. Do you know the fourth in English? I thought I knew them all in both languages, Sam said despondently. Elder Tilly chuckled, ah, to be green again. To call a missionary green was about the same as calling a teenager a baby. It was not a compliment, but Sam sensed that Elder Tilly didn't mean to insult him. He was just commenting on his own memory of being a greenie. The walk was short, and the apartment complex was newer. They took an odd elevator to the seventh floor and walked to apartment 722. A note was stuck to the door in a fashion Sam had never seen. The envelope had been licked, and the flap stuck to the door. When Elder Tilly pulled it off, it left a white inverted V on the door. Dear Mormon elders, I am no longer interested in continuing our discussions. Thanks for calling, Ava. Someone got to her, Elder Tilly lamented as he stuffed the note into his pocket. It happens a lot. Well, our tracting area is not far from here. We still have several hours of daylight. Why didn't she call? It seems rude to just stick a note to the door, Sam complained as they walked briskly to their tracting area. We don't have a phone, as you may have noticed. Things are different here. Most people don't have telephones, and you have to pay by the call, so they are expensive to use. Most people only call for important things or emergencies. Because of this, we never use the phone since it scares people. They think only bad news comes when the phone rings. Besides, we can't afford it. You wouldn't believe the cost of getting a phone installed. And I'm told there's a five-year waiting list. Elder Tilly winked at him. Don't worry, Elder. You'll get used to a phoneless world. They turned several corners and entered a residential area of small homes. Sam guessed the homes were no bigger than one or two bedrooms at most. Each home had a tiny front yard surrounded by a short, ornate concrete fence. Then yards were... The yards were immaculately kept, with breathtaking displays of flowers and shrubs. Africa was, after all, an arid tropical climate, and flowers seemed to spring from the cracks in the sidewalks. Elder Tilly walked up to the first gate. A pit bull ran from the porch to the gate and began barking. Elder Tilly pushed open the gate and strode toward the house. Sam hesitated and then followed. The dog nipped at his heels as he hurriedly tried to keep up. <clears throat> the doorbell was a buzzer that reminded Sam of the timer built into his mother's stove. A woman in her 40s slowly opened the door a few inches. When she saw who they were and who or who she thought they were, she slammed it back shut. Footsack, she called from the other side of the door. Sam knew it was a curse, usually reserved for dogs and, and rapists. It literally meant, go away, I say, but carried an array of colorful threats and insults, several of which were threats of physical violence and suggestions of non-human ancestry. When someone said footsack, they really meant it. 
In reality, the word she said was Afrikaans, but sounded exactly like footsack in English. Elder Tilly slid a blue pamphlet under the door. As they walked away, they could hear it being ripped to shreds. Happens a lot, was all he said. Somehow, it seemed to make it less disappointing, almost normal. But it's, it still bothered Sam. He found himself wondering why the lady was so angry and if they should go back and reason with her. Elder Tilly seemed to have no such misgivings as he marched away. The next house was a... Oh, the, <laughs> the next house had a bull mastiff. Bull mastiff? Whatever that kind of dog is. Uh, it was so big that it could almost look them in the eye over the concrete fence. Elder Tilly marched right up, spoke something soothing to the dog, and opened the, day, opened the gate. Then he proceeded up the short lane. Sam followed, trembling with fear of the dog. Instead of biting him, it followed him, sniffing at his behind. Just as the owner opened the door, the big dog put its nose on Sam's heel and slid his big slobbery nose all the way up into his crotch. Sam couldn't keep himself from uttering a startled cry. The owner saw what had happened, laughed at them, and slammed the door. Elder Tilly glanced at Sam as he wiped a slobber off his pants. Happens a lot, he says. After three more doors, Elder Tilly turned to Sam. Elder, this one's yours. I do five, you do five. But if you get stuck, I'll help you. But don't expect me to bail you out until you are really stuck. I'm here. Just relax. You'll do fine. He pushed open the gate and motioned for Sam to lead the way. But I don't know what to say. Say whatever the spirit di directs, or whatever you've memorized. Whichever comes to mind first, he chuckled. I'm not sure I can handle it if it's not in English. Okay, tell you what. If it's in Afrikaans, I'll take it. If it's in English, you take it. Now do it. Sam took a breath and strode in. He didn't even notice the barking dog as he walked past it. He knocked and waited. Someone stirred inside and pulled open the door. A young woman stood before him. She was holding a little girl. The baby was almost was about two years old and was one of the most beautiful little girls he'd ever seen. His eyes were pulled toward the child, and for a moment he entirely forgot why he was there. The woman turned the child toward Sam. He reached out her. He reached out to her. The little girl cocked her head and reached out a small hand with a big smile. Her hand was tiny compared to his, and it was so and it was sticky. Sam smiled and, still holding her hand, suddenly remembered why they were there. With a start, he turned back to the baby's mother. To his surprise, she was studying his face with interest. He forced a smile from his face and introduced himself in Afrikaans. He, he could do that much. I prefer English, she said in Afrikaans, then added, in English, and I think you might too. <laughs> yes, ma'am, Sam said with a little too much relief. Today's my first day in South Africa, and I can't understand a word anyone says. Even the English people are hard for me to understand. This made her laugh, which sounded uh, musical to his ears. You have an American accent, she observed. Yes, I suppose I do. I'm from Idaho in the western United States. We're missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormons, she asked. We're sometimes called Mormons. We, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm not interested in your church. My husband and I are happy in our church. I hope you'll forgive me. Elder Tilly turned to leave, and the woman started to close the door. Believe me, you are not being rude, Sam muttered as he turned. The door stopped closing. She had a quizzical look on her face. Sam hurried to explain. What I mean is, the previous five doors got slammed in our faces. I've almost been bitten by two dogs and was molested by a third. Not being interested, I understand, but slamming the door or 
sicking your dog on someone is rude. You certainly haven't been rude. I thank you for allowing me to speak to someone who understands what being a Christian means. She frowned at this and says, If I truly understand what being a Christian means, I probably wouldn't turn you away, would I? But really, I'm not interested. Sam had to think about this before answering. I can't imagine you doing anything unchristian. Forgive me for intruding on your evening. It was worth it to see, just to see your daughter. She's so cute. Is she about two? She'll be two in three weeks. Reminds me of my baby sister when she was that age. Sam turned to leave and the woman slowly closed the door. When they were back on the sidewalk, Sam suddenly had an idea. Just a minute, he said, and he hurried back up the walk. He rang the bell. When she opened the door, he handed her a Joseph Smith tract. She seemed reluctant to accept it, so she handed it to the child who snatched it from him. Ma'am, I came over 6,000 miles to be a missionary. So far, you're the nicest person I've met in this country, and the most wonderful thing I possess is in that pamphlet. I know you aren't interested and won't read it, just the same. I wouldn't feel right about not giving you something in return for your kindness. He smiled and trotted back down the steps. When he closed the gate, she was still standing in the door. She had a confused expression on her face. Sam waved, and in response, he took her daughter's arm and waved it back at him. She took her daughter's arm and waved it back at him. As they were walking away, Elder Tilly put an X next to 355, their house number. Why'd you do that? They sacked us, and X warns the next elders not to knock on that door again, he said matter-of-factly. I know what the X means. What I mean is, why did you X her? She didn't sack us, Sam objected. Did too. Did not. Are we in her house teaching her the first discussion, Elder Tilly countered? Well, no. Do we have an appointment to come back? No. She sacked us. Sam stood his ground. But I have this feeling. I think we planted a seed. I have this feeling that maybe you wasted a Joseph Smith tract. Do you realize we have to buy those things ourselves? Give away ten of them and it's worth one soft drink. Don't waste them, Elder. We can give out the little blue ones for free. If they sack us, give them a blue one, okay? She didn't sack us, Sam insisted. His companion moaned and muttered something in Afrikaans about greenies as they turned into the next gate. Ten slam doors later, they headed for home. It took them almost an hour to walk back, and each step brought one more exhaustion until Sam was not sure he could make it home. The town was hilly like San Francisco, and seemed an endless series of climbs and equally wearying descents. By the time they stopped at their boarding house, Sam was exhausted and completely lost. He didn't recognize the building and thought they were going to track one more house before going home. He was startled when Tilly opened the door and just walked in. When Sam got to his bed, he fell onto it and almost immediately began to snore. Elder Tilly roused him and said something about scripture study and companion prayers. Sam felt he was talking to someone in a dream. Elder Tilly, did you ever notice how much bigger I am than you? Yes, but this body is going to sleep, whether you or I tell it to or not to. Uh, If you want to knock yourself out trying to get it up, help yourself, but I'm not going to fight it or you. Good night. I'll pray for your soul, you sinless, sinful elder, Tilly said in mock seriousness. Light a candle for me, Sam muttered, and promptly fell to sleep. Elder Tilly let Sam sleep until about 8 a.m. the following morning, two hours past normal. Sam was still tired when he awoke. Elder Tilly was sitting on his bed reading the scriptures. They made it to breakfast just in time. It consisted of a shallow bowl of white corn mush with a pat of butter, salt, sugar, and milk, 
It was tasty, but only a quarter of what Sam's stomach was hoping for. After breakfast, Elder Tilly announced that they were going thumb tracting. Sam had no idea of what this meant, but followed gamely. They walked out onto the busy street, and Tilly stuck out his thumb. Sam did the same. In less than two minutes, a big old Buick screeched to a stop in front of them. The brakes were metal to metal. In America, this car would have been a classic. In Africa, it was a taxi stuffed with about ten black people. Sam couldn't believe that many people could fit into a car. The springs were collapsed from the weight, and the bumper almost touched the ground. As soon as it stopped, the driver leaned in uh, toward them and spoke loudly with a big smile on his face. Good morning, my bossies. Do you need to ride into town, my bossies? I have plenty of room, if you like. I drive you to town. Sam had several African-American friends back home, but this man's face was truly black. His accent was lilting with a sing-song beat. Sam could not imagine what room he was talking about, but as the driver was speaking, four people got out to make space for the missionaries. Tilly thanked them and told them that they would never make someone else walk so they could ride. After much persuasion, they went on. The blacks offer us rides about ten to one over whites. They know we are missionaries, and they have taboos and strong beliefs about missionaries. It's considered good luck to give a missionary a ride, and to give foreign missionaries a ride is a big honor. They were probably really disappointed we didn't take them up on it. Why did they call us bossy? I once had a cow called bossy, Sam observed dryly. Well, they call anyone they respect their boss. If they are speaking to someone younger, they often call them bossy. In our language, it's a compliment, like a small boss. Bossy. See? But in Zulu, bossy means something like little smartass or something like that. It's not a compliment. I thought you said they would be honored to give us a ride in their car. Why insult us then? Oh, they would have been honored. In that situation, they have the power, and offering a ride, us a ride puts them in a position of power over us. They weren't offering us a ride to honor us. They were offering a ride to honor themselves, to be able to have power over us. That sounds pretty cynical. Are you sure about that? It sounds petty and cheap, Sam said with a note of disgust in his voice. I have heard many people comment on that aspect of black culture. Have you ever heard a black person say that? I don't speak Zulu. I won't believe all that until I hear a black person say it. Why don't we just take one of them up on their offer? Why not ride with the black people? Well, there's two reasons, Elder Tilly explained. The first is that I don't like the idea of putting four people afoot so we can ride. And Sam agreed with that. The second is that it's actually illegal. What? Sam exclaimed. He could not believe his ears. It is, Elder Tilly insisted. The church has a binding agreement with the South African government that no LDS missionaries will meet with a group of blacks larger than four persons. It also absolutely prohibits us teaching them the gospel. You're joking, Sam said. Elder Tilly turned uh, to face Sam, his face stern. Sam could tell he was not joking. Elder Mahoy, this is not America. The laws are different here. When we return to boarding, I will show it to you in our writing in our missionary handbook. To avoid the appearance of holding meetings with black citizens, we do not accept rides from carloads of blacks. I think that's terrible, Sam said it adamantly. Actually, I do too, Elder. I do too. But I can't change the way things are. Elder Tilly was muttering something against, again about greenies when another car load of blacks pulled up. The missionaries turned it down, as well as another, before the white man pulled up in his car all by himself. They got in, and while driving to town, almost taught him the first discussion. He was nice, but not interested, and the subject changed to the weather. 
he let them out near the center of town. Pretoria was a bustling city of high-rise apartments. The street level held shops, stores, and businesses. The apartments above the shopping district were new-looking and appeared to be recently built. The signs along the street were about half Afrikaans and half English. Sam could see Coca-Cola, Kodak, General Electric, Sony, and a hundred other f names familiar to him. They walked a short distance and went into the camera shop where Elder Tilly's camera was being repaired. He picked it up, and after paying, they looked around the store. Everything seemed expensive. Everything they could have bought in a camera store in America was on the shelves, but it was much more expensive. It turned out that Elder Tilly loved photography and came here occasionally to look at the latest equipment. His camera was new and expensive. They decided to walk to the park and meet people there before lunch, but their attempt at proselyting was a disaster. Every conversation they tried to start ended up in a curt refusal. It seemed that everyone was in too big a hurry to listen to their message. By lunchtime, they were both discouraged. They couldn't get home in time for lunch at the boarding, and Sam didn't have enough money to buy anything. Elder Tilly bought them fish and chips at a small shop. The little cafe was no bigger than a walk-in closet and had a line of people waiting. It was worth the wait. Sam finally tasted something he liked, and he couldn't. He could have eaten twice as much. They decided to take the bus home and found the correct bus stop, which was not a simple task. They had to study the bus schedule for 20 minutes, tracing routes and studying maps to see which bus or combination of buses would take them the nearest home. In the end, the fastest way home was a direct ride that left them within a half mile of their boarding. The combination of buses that would have left them off within a block of home would have gotten them back several hours later. Sam was surprised to learn it only cost five cents to ride the bus. As they were waiting, Sam noticed that they were just a few doors from a music store. He missed music, and he had left his harmonica with his parents. As they had a few hours to wait, Sam finally persuaded Elder Tilly to go in and browse around. They stepped inside, and Sam was entranced. Most of the instruments were used, showing obvious signs of wear, yet the shop looked prosperous. Sam gazed at the instruments, wondering what stories each instrument could tell, who had owned them, and, and why they had sold them. He was so deep in thought that he was startled when the store owner spoke to them in English. Looking for something particular, gentlemen? Huh? Oh, no, mostly waiting for the bus, but I love music. Hope you don't mind, Sam said. Certainly not. Do you play? The store owner was a young man in his 30s, dressed like an American hippie. He had long hair held back by a scarf tied around his head and was wearing a flowered shirt, faded bell-bottom Levi's, and sandals over white socks. It was almost comical, but he seemed very comfortable in his attire. I used to play the flute and the harmonica. I tinker on the organ and the piano. Nothing spectacular. I gave up the flute years ago. You're American, the shop owner nearly shouted. Yes, we... He wanted to tell them they were missionaries, but the man grabbed his hand and started pumping it up and down. I am too, except that I've never been there. I mean, I love everything American. In my office, I have an American flag. I collect American stamps and everything American that I can get my hands on. I love American clothes, American music, John Wayne, Walt Disney, America, everything. He was so enthusiastic that Sam was embarrassed. Even Sam didn't love American everything. His... My name's Thomas Snodgrass. Pleased to meet you. Elder Sam Mahoy and Elder John Tilly, Sam introduced them. Tom finally stopped shaking Sam's hand and walked over to Elder Tilly's. Elder Tilly was smiling like he was watching a comedy act. Do you play Dixieland Jazz? That's my favorite. 
I don't know that I've ever tried, Sam admitted. What? You said you're an American. You really a Russian spy? Just kidding. I thought all Americans love Dixieland jazz. Well, some do, I'm sure, but no buts. Which instrument do you prefer? Pick one and I'll get my trumpet. Sam looked at Elder Tilly, who shrugged his indifference. Sam wandered over to the piano and sat down. Oddly enough, or perhaps not oddly at all, it was an American-made Baldwin Baby Grand. It was obviously a used piano, but it was in perfect tune. Sam played a primary song, and peace came over him. The piano was in great condition, and he felt its music calling. Tom returned with a long silver trumpet and blew an exuberant note. Without warning, he launched into When the Saints Go Marching In. When Sam didn't play along, he stopped. What's the matter? You're a Mormon missionary, and you're from America. This is an American song. Don't you know it? He asked in mock amazement. I've heard it, but okay, I'll play the opening long, and whatever I do, you do the same thing, okay? Good. Key of C. What is the key of C? Oh, one of those. No black notes, he answered with a surprising patience. Got it, Sam said, understanding perfectly. Tom puffed out his cheeks and belted out the note for the lyrics. Oh, when the saints... Sam hummed out the same thing. Tom played Go Marching In. Sam copied him but added a few chords. They played back and forth until it had won the song to a frazzle. Tom would stop and periodically give him some instruction. Okay, now go up a key. Play a fourth, then a fifth, and then add a seventh. See how that leads to a natural key change? Now you'll just play everything with two sharps, F and C. When he explained it that way, it made perfect sense to Sam. He played by feeling and, and hearing and every previous attempt to explain music theory to him had gone over his head. But Tom had a way of teaching it that made sense. Sam played until his fingers ached, and they had missed their intended bus. By the time they stopped playing, the store was jammed with people who had come in to listen. Tom stood his horn on the piano and turned to the people. In a few minutes, he had sold one lady trumpet lessons for her son, and another man said he would bring his wife back to see the piano Sam had been playing. "'Hey, you Mormons are good for business!' Tom proclaimed loudly. Many people in the store laughed. Tom disappeared and returned with his flute. He handed it to Sam, who took it reluctantly. Elder, play us some flute. The people clapped and urged him on. Elder Tilly nodded at him to do it, but Sam laid the flute on the piano and shook his head. I'm sorry, I don't play the flute anymore, Sam explained quietly. That was a long time ago. As they left, so did the crowd. One man wanted to know who they were, and several others asked if it was part of their mission. A woman wanted Sam to teach her daughter piano lessons. He explained that they were there to teach the gospel, not the piano. The woman considered this and then invited them to come to her home to teach the gospel if he would play too. They made an appointment with her. While the elders stood at the bus stop, they talked with several people about the gospel and made another appointment. By the time they finally arrived home, they had made three appointments, taught two discussions, and were filled with the Spirit. It was a wonderful day. After companion prayers that evening, Elder Tilly complimented Sam on his playing and the effect that it had on people. He suggested they return every Tuesday and do the same thing. Sam was delighted, but admitted humbly, Elder, all I can say is what happened in the music store was a miracle. God knew I needed to play the piano, and he was the one who did it, not me. As the weeks progressed, their Tuesday music tracting, as they came to call it, turned into Tuesday and Thursday, then Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday... Tom loved it. People actually planned to be at his store, and a few made reservations. They had to have his wife Linda come to the store to man it, so he could make music with Sam. Tom started handing Sam different instruments just to see what he could do. With a few dismal exceptions, Sam quickly learned to play most of them. 
The third week, Tom handed him a violin. Gosh, I've never touched one of these. Don't have a clue what to do, Sam said with some hesitation. Tom handed him a bow and shoved him, or showed him how to hold the violin. He showed him where to press down the strings to play different notes on the scale. Sam was surprised at how simple it seemed to him. It made perfect sense, like he was learning to speak a long-forgotten native language. The violin suddenly felt like an old friend, and Sam rejoiced in the flow of the spirit as he drew the bow across the strings. Under Tom's direction, he ground out a simple tune, adjusting the bow's pressure to create a sweeter sound. Tom picked up the violin from the counter for himself and played a catchy um, line. Sam struggled, but played the same thing, albeit with several squeals. Tom played it again, and Sam did better. The fourth time, it was fairly decent. Tom played something harder, and Sam copied. Tom's eyes widened in utter amazement. What he was witnessing was quite impossible, and he knew, and he knew it. Tom then fired off a complicated melody, and Sam botched it halfway through. Tom repeated it, and Sam did it right the second time, and people clapped. Tom's wife sold some violin lessons. By the end of the day, Sam was playing the violin fairly well, even achieving the beginnings of a vibrato. He had felt the flow of the spirit empowering his musical ability throughout the entire experience, and he offered up many silent prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving. As they were playing the final passage, Sam heard a familiar melody in his mind. It was the song he had played at Jimmy's funeral, a haunting, passionate piece by Bach. He couldn't get the tune from his head. It called from him so loudly that it started coming from the violin. Sam closed his eyes and heard the music. It welled up in him like an irresistible force and spilled out onto the strings. He was there, back at the funeral, Jimmy's still little form before him. Sam threw his head back and played. His heart overflowed, and the strings cried out the precious feelings. Tears streamed down his cheeks, and he played as if nothing else in the world mattered. When the music ceased, he was startled to hear someone sniffle. He opened his eyes and realized that nearly 50 people were looking at him, with faces filled with emotion, some with tears on their cheeks. He lowered the violin, and they applauded. He suddenly felt foolish, exposed, and embarrassed. It was too private a moment to have shared with so many people he's... Suppress the urge to run away. Sam's old feelings of never wanting to play in front of people dominated him for a minute, but quickly washed away. Suddenly, he knew something about himself that he had never been able to understand. His soul was filled with music. He was so full of music that he heard it night and day. It was so real and so deep that it nearly flooded out of his conscious thought at times. Like a new revelation, Sam realized that music was one of his gifts from God. He realized that music was not something that he had struggled and practiced a million hours to perfect. It wasn't even something he had asked for. It was simply and entirely a free gift from God. Sam had known this on some level before, but it had never occurred to him how magnificent this gift really was. At that moment, he realized how wrong it was to hide it and to not use it. The spontaneous and surprised applause from the listeners drilled this knowledge home to his soul, and in silent prayer, he thanked Heavenly Father and gave him all credit. He knew where the music came from, and it wasn't from himself. Like all things of pure beauty, it was from God. Tom and Linda drove them home that evening, as they often did. Tom usually didn't want them to leave, and they would usually miss the last bus. As they pulled onto the highway, Linda sighed. They didn't often say much to the elders. They were Tom's friends, and everyone in the car was surprised when she spoke directly to Sam. Elder Mahoy, I feel as if a miracle happened before my eyes today. I'm not sure what it was. I mean, watching you touch a violin for the first time and play it so beautifully just a few hours later, that was a miracle. But that's not what I mean. 
As I listened to you play, I saw the tears coming down your cheeks. I felt as if God were in the store with you. When you stopped, your face was glowing and my chest was burning like it was on fire. I never felt that before. I felt as if I wanted to laugh, shout for joy, and cry all at the same time. I've never felt such a complex mixture of joy and yearning. I want to know why your face was glowing tonight and why my chest was burning. Linda turned to face Tom. I know we kind of have an understanding with these young Mormon men. They just come and play and don't talk about their religion, but I simply must know, Tom. Tom, I want them to come to our house and uh, answer these questions. If you aren't interested, you can go into another room or something. I'm sorry, Tom, but I have to know. Then turning back to the elder, she asked, Will you come teach me about what happened tonight? Elder Tilly broke the silence that followed. Elder Mahoy, what were you doing at the end of the music when you were just standing there? Embarrassed, Sam cleared his throat. I was praying, he said softly. Why? Linda said impetuously. Tom interjected. Honey, maybe it's too personal, he said, although it was obvious that he wanted to know too. Sorry, I... You don't have to answer that, Linda apologized. No, it's all right, Linda, really, Sam said softly and smiled at her. She relaxed. I guess the easiest way to explain it is that I've always been musical and embarrassed about it. I'm a big guy, and playing music isn't a thing big guys are supposed to do, so I would only play for my baby brother, who loved my music. I used to spend hours playing my flute for him. He would sit on my knee and I would play. He would sing mostly nonsense words or ones he just made up. It was our connection. After he died, I never played the flute again. Except for my harmonica and some church music, I hadn't played any instrument until I walked into your store a few weeks ago. Tom nodded understandingly, and Linda turned around and knelt in her seat so she could face the elders. Sam continued. Tonight, for a few minutes, I was back there at the funeral, playing that same music as I looked down into the casket. Back then, I laid my flute next to him in the casket and vowed I'd never play again. Tonight, I vowed I would play all I could to express my love to Heavenly Father. I think that's the miracle. I think a part of me came back to life tonight. In a small way, the musical part of my soul has been reborn. I was praying to thank Heavenly Father for that miracle. Nobody spoke for the remainder of the drive. They pulled up to the boarding house. Sam was halfway out of the car when he paused and sat down. His heart burned within him. He didn't want to offend them, yet he had to know what the Lord wanted him to say. He waited until peace swept over him. Tom, Linda, tonight was a special spiritual experience for me, and you were an important part of it. Would you be okay if I said a prayer and thanked Heavenly Father for this blessing and your part in it? They nodded their heads silently. Sam bowed his head, and after a moment, he said, Heavenly Father, I'm so sorry I hid behind my sorrow all these years. I now know that it was wrong, and I know that thou hast brought Tom and Linda into my life to teach me this. I just want thee to know how grateful I am. Please bless Tom and Linda, and let them feel the Holy Spirit as they drive home so that they will know how pleased thou art with them for helping me understand thy blessing to me and thy will for me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This looks like a journal entry, maybe? March 6, 1974. We have continued to go to Tom and Linda's store three times a week. It has turned out to be a wonderful experience. We keep busy teaching all the rest of the week from appointments we make in the store. Since we started this, we haven't needed to do much tracting. Can't say I miss it. It wasn't very productive. Tonight, Tom handed me a violin. 
I've never played one, but I was able to play it somehow. It was as if I had played one all my life. I wasn't thinking about how to put my fingers on the strings. I was hearing the music in my soul and causing it to come out through the violin. I have had similar experiences like when I go on a harmonica a few Christmases ago. Something happened while I was playing. The Holy Spirit came over Linda and Tom and touched something in their souls. I hadn't really thought of them as investigators, just friends. We began teaching them next Tuesday... No, we will begin teaching them next Tuesday after playing in their store. I know they are ready for the gospel. It will be a joy to teach them. The hardest part of this evening was asking them to pray as we sat in the car. I felt my soul burning and I, I knew what to do, but for some reason I was afraid to offend them. But that feeling of peace flowed over me and I did it. It was a wonderful experience. The spirit was strong and they felt it. I'm learning to trust the promptings of the Holy Spirit even more than I did before. I honestly believe that in order to be a good missionary, I have to be completely obedient to the Holy Spirit. Then I will be able to do His work His way. I think I learned something about missionary work tonight. We have been trying to influence people to listen to our message, and the ones we simply loved and weren't even trying to influence ended up being the ones the Lord has prepared. I love missionary work. I love the Lord. I feel the power of His love as I speak to the people. Tom and Linda's home was a large was large and hidden deep in a lovely subdivision. Sam and Elder Tilly were impressed. Tom was obviously proud of his success, but brushed off their compliments. Linda beamed as she showed them around their place. The building was horseshoe-shaped, with towers at both ends. A swimming pool was nestled in the lush courtyard formed by the house. It truly was impressive. They s suggested sitting around the dining room table for their meeting. Elder Tilly set up the flannel board and began the first discussion. Before Elder Tilly had finished the first concept, Tom seemed to grow restless and Linda was frowning. Elder Tilly made a voice more made his voice more sincere and tried hard to teach with the spirit. By the time it was Sam's turn, there was a strange feeling in the room. Sam didn't pick up immediately with the next part of the lesson, but sat quietly looking at his new friends. Elder Tilly assumed he had forgotten his part and began with the second concept, but Sam interrupted him politely. Elder Tilly smiled and leaned back in his chair. Linda, Tom, I want to tell you something I was taught by my family. Something very important to me that I hope will be important to you too. They both nodded and turned toward him. Ever since I was a little boy, I have had an active conscience. You know, the, the voice that stops you from doing everything you thought you was going to be fun? They laughed and made comments about how well they understood. I didn't realize until my parents taught me that the voice I was hearing is the light of Christ coming from the Holy Spirit. Every person born into this world has a conscience and knows the difference between right and wrong. Everyone? Tom asked doubtfully. The scriptures say that every person born into the world has the light of Christ. The important point here is that the light of Christ comes from Christ and is actually his voice in our soul. It is revelation to us. Wow, Linda said, are you sure? I mean, wouldn't that make us prophets or something if we're receiving revelations? Sam nodded. In some ways it does, or at least it can lead to that point. What do you think the reason is for giving Christ, uh, is for Christ giving us this revelation? Elder Tilly cleared his throat. Elder, would you like me to take it from here? He gave Sam a pointed look to remind him that they were not supposed to deviate from the memorized lessons. Thanks. In a minute, Sam replied, his mind hardly registering the companion's words. You both indicated that you heard your conscience guide you in the past. Did you follow that guidance? 
Sometimes I don't, Tom admitted. I have always looked at my conscience as a nuisance, not as a guide. Linda leaned on the table with her elbows and put her chins in her hands. I try to, but miss a lot, I think. I try not to do anything contrary to my conscience, though. Why is that? Sam asked. Well, because I feel miserable when I disobey, Linda answered slowly. Could you say that in a positive way? What? Oh, yes, because I always feel good when I obey. Actually, it's true, but I've never thought of it before. Sam nodded and asked, Would it be a fair conclusion, then, to say that the purpose of the light of Christ, or our conscience, is to make us feel good, to make us happy? Tom straightened a bit and thought about the question. I think that could be a fair statement. But it strikes me as being too simplistic. I, I get the feeling that there has to be a larger purpose to anything God does than just making us happy. Elder Tilly coughed loudly, slapped a flannel cutout of Joseph Smith on the board, and began to speak. Brother and Sister Snodgrass, as we were saying earlier, since all the apostles and prophets of Christ's time were killed by evil men, it became necessary for God to restore the things that were lost at their death. For this reason, in the spring of 1820, God again called a living prophet. He was 14 years old, and his name was Joseph Smith. Why do you think God called Joseph Smith to be a prophet? Linda looked a bit impatient, and Tom smiled woodenly at Elder Tilly. Elder Tilly, would you mind if Elder Mahoy finishes his thought before we get to Joseph Smith? I know about Mr. Smith and the Gold Bible, and frankly, I, I'm doubtful of the entire story. I want to know what Elder Mahoy is getting at. When he was talking to me, my soul seemed to Yeah. When he was talking to me, my soul seemed to be on fire. When you started with Joseph Smith, the fire went out. I don't mean to be rude, but could you kindly postpone your comments until Elder Mahoy is done? Elder Tilly's mouth was hanging open. Oh sure, excuse me, he said. Sam felt the awkward feeling in the room and wasn't sure what to say, so he relaxed for a few seconds. Then he felt the peace of the spirit and spoke again with confidence. The scriptures indicate that man was created for the purpose of having joy, but the type of joy in the scriptures are speaking of isn't necessarily the type we might be getting from winning the lottery or finding a buried treasure, but it's the type of happiness that comes to a person when he or she finally enters the kingdom of God. So what does that got to do with conscience? Tom asked as if Sam still hadn't returned to the prior subject. If the ultimate object and outcome of God's plan for us is to make us happy, how would you expect to feel if you were on the correct course and successfully traveling toward that goal? Happy, they both said simultaneously. Linda added, but happy in the sense that I feel happy as my chest was burning as after you played the violin. Happy in a deep, wonderful way. Exactly. Sam paused, and they had sensed a sweet feeling present. No wonder I feel miserable, frustrated, and unhappy most of the time, Tom said loudly, half-joking. Linda jabbed him with his, her elbow, which he pretended really hurt. Every time we hear and obey our conscience, it brings us greater genuine happiness. Every time we disobey, we become more miserable. That's me, Tom said. It often takes courage to accept what our conscience tells us, because it's often contrary to our own will, even contrary to common sense at times. But if we know what the, is the voice of Christ and it's telling us to do something good, then we can be confident that obeying it will ultimately bring us great blessings, even if at the time we can't see how it could possibly be. Tom leaned forward. When we first met, I told you two that you could come to my store any time, 
but you were not to talk to me about your religion. You honored that request right up until the other night when you asked us how to pray with you, asked us to pray with you in the car. How did you know that that request wouldn't offend us so we'd just drive away? He then stopped. Never mind, I know the answer. Sam turned to Linda. What do you think the answer is the answer to Tom's question? You felt guided by the Holy Spirit, and because of your faith, you knew it wouldn't offend us. Not exactly. I felt guided, but I didn't know what your response would be. I only knew that the Lord wanted me what the Lord wanted me to do. We seldom know the outcome of our obedience, only that it is what is right. I, I see. Linda pushed her long hair out of her face. I can see why obedience might be scary, except for the faith that one would develop through obedience. Sam nodded at her and turned to Tom. Tom, a minute ago you asked a question and said you knew the answer. Why did it feel like when you suddenly knew that answer? It felt complete and comfortable, as if I'd known it all my life. I just knew it, that's all, he responded. And has it brought you happiness? Has it been a blessing in your life? In other words, did that knowledge come from God? Tom smiled broadly, his voice certain. I believe that it did. What you have already told me tonight is going to change the course of my life. I know what you are saying is true, and I've decided to live my life by obeying my conscience. I don't know where it'll take me, but I'm going to do it. Linda slipped her hand into Tom's. Me too, and I think I know where Elder Mahoy would say is going to take us. Back to God, right? Sam did not speak, but beamed at her. She already knew the answer. Then he said, I want you both to listen with your hearts for a moment, not with your rational minds. I want you to feel, to listen to that still, small voice, and after a moment, I'm going to ask you to tell me what you feel. Elder Tilly, would you repeat what you started to say earlier about Joseph Smith? Elder Tilly was following every word and smoothly flowed into the account of the first vision. He told the events as if he had himself been there, with wonder in his voice, with a sense of great joy. He told it as if he had never, as he had never done before, and his heart soared as he recounted that holy visitation. When he finished, he knew even more powerfully that he had known it uh, than he had ever known in his life that it was perfectly, profoundly true. He concluded and bore a joyous witness of its truthfulness, barely able to restrain his emotions. Sam turned back to Tom. Tom, what did you just feel now? You are... Oh, you are a prophet, able to receive revelation for yourself. What did the Holy Spirit whisper to your soul as you listened to Elder Tilly? Tom cleared his voice and fidgeted in his seat. Linda placed a hand on his arm as tears pooled in her his eyes. He looked at her, Elder Tilly, and back at Sam. His voice was barely audible as he said, I know it's true. Linda clapped a hand to her mouth in wonder and tears formed in her eyes. She gave Tom a hug and rested her hand on his shoulder. Linda, would you like to add your feeling to Tom's? I felt it too. It was like after the violin music. My heart felt like it was on fire. When Tom said that it was true, I just knew with all my heart he was right. Sam took a deep breath before he spoke the next words. We are going to have a baptismal service exactly one month from today. Would you be willing to make the necessary preparations to participate in that service? Are you willing to commit your lives totally to obedience to the Lord and be baptized into his church? They nodded without hesitation and kissed each other. For the briefest time, eternity paused, and for a moment of joy, uh, 
and a moment of joy was indelibly recorded in heaven. Journal entry, March 23, 1974. Brother and Sister Snodgrass committed to baptism tonight. It was a wonderful discussion, but it got me in trouble with Elder Tilly. I didn't feel they needed to hear the first discussion, and when it was my turn, I taught them about the Holy Spirit and how to discern truth. When we did give them the first vision, they accepted it. They wouldn't have otherwise. Anyways, Elder Tilly gave me a lecture about not deviating from the lessons and following his lead as long as he was senior companion. I felt like asking him who I should obey, him or the Lord. But I didn't. The important part is that Tom and Linda are committed to baptism. I hope we can teach them uh, every time with the Spirit. I have a feeling that they will not respond to the missionary lessons exactly as they are written. They seem offended when we started rattling off memorized words. In this and in all other things, I will do as the Lord commands. It is my only hope and my only joy. After scripture study the next morning, Sam finished a pencil sketch he had begun three weeks earlier. The image was clear in his mind as he worked. Sketching was another thing that came fairly easy to him. Although he had never developed the talent past rudimentary art, he found a piece of stiff white paper that worked perfectly. When he was finished, he showed Elder Tilly the sketch. I've seen this little girl before, Tilly said in surprise. It's the little girl at the first house I did the door approach to three weeks ago, remember? Now I do. This is good. It looks just like her. Why'd you draw a picture of her? On our way to the tracting area, I'll show you. This was the only explanation Sam felt inclined to give. Elder Tilly accepted his answer and they hiked off. They arrived at house number 355 about 30 minutes later. It was nearly 10 a.m. in the morning. I think this is going to turn out badly, Elder Tilly said to Sam, leading up to the walk. He rang the doorbell and waited. After a long time, the young mother opened the door. Her eyes looked as if she'd been sleeping. She gave a small sign of recognition and a big sign of annoyance. She was not pleased to see them again, but didn't say anything. Sam held out the picture without explanation, which she took after a slight hesitation. She studied his drawing with a dull expression, and then a smile tugged at her lips. Sam noticed what a beautiful woman she was. He also noticed that she was not a whole lot older than himself. She had short, dark hair and high cheekbones, portraying an almost noble appearance. Her lips were full and gave the impression of being willing to smile. Her eyes were a most startling brown, almost black. It's her birthday, isn't it? Sam said, disclosing that the spirit what the spirit had whispered to him that morning. I drew her a picture. She said nothing, but continued to stare at him with no expression. Sam was beginning to agree with Elder Tilly that this was going to go badly. He started to back up to leave, but felt a hand in the middle of his back. He stopped thinking about the trip over... No, thinking he was about to trip over Elder Tilly, but realized with a start that his companion that his companion was standing beside him and had both arms folded across his chest. Yet the hand on his back had been very distinct. A sweet peace settled over him, and he knew he should not leave until the Lord had finished whatever it was that they were there to do. Then a tear trickled from the mother's eye, and she held the picture to her heart. Her lips said, Thank you, but no sound came out. Sam didn't know what to do, and was grateful Elder Tilly said, Is there something we can do? Is everything all right? She shook her head, and Sam wasn't sure which question she was answering. Perhaps both of them. Sam said, Ma'am, is something wrong with your daughter? I'd like to help if we can. Instead of answering, she stepped back and motioned them to enter. The living room was small and dark. 
It had a brightly polished hardwood floor and worn but functional furniture. They found a seat on the sofa. After closing the door, she took a seat in a big chair that groaned as she sat in it. A few more tears coursed down her face before she said, Juanita is ill. She has a blood disease. The doctors didn't expect it to advance as quickly as it has. There's nothing they can do for her, I'm afraid. Just at that moment, a young man walked into the room from the back of the house. He was tall and blonde. Sam looked as... Sam thought he looked like someone had peeled him off of a California surfer poster. He walked into the room to stand beside his wife, a look of displeasure on his face. Sam could almost hear him thinking, What are these Mormons doing in my house? Sean, these are Mormon missionaries. I'm sorry, I don't know your names. Elder Tilly introduced himself and Sam. Their names were Connie and Sean Van Van Doggen. Look, Elder Mahoy drew a picture of Juanita, Connie said as she held the picture up for Sean to see. The hard expression on Sam's fa- er, Sean's face softened. It's a birthday present for her, she added, but her voice trailed off. A look of concern crossed her face. She's sleeping. I gave her another pill, Sean said in answer to her unspoken concern. He turned to Sam. It's a beautiful picture. Her birthday's actually two more days away, but I'll give it to her. Sam heard the rest in his soul, if she lives that long. Sam's heart ached, and he remembered the pain of his little brother's death. He remembered the two long weeks when Jimmy was unconscious, and everyone had hoped he would live, even though they knew he wouldn't. Without realizing it, Sam bowed his head. He understood their pain perfectly, and it was more than he could bear to see them going through when what he and his family had suffered. Tears fell onto his hands. After a moment, he realized he was weeping and wiped his eyes. He noticed with a start that everyone was watching him. (sighs) Excuse me, he mumbled. It's just that my little brother died when he was two, and I, I remember the waiting and wishing and the unbearable hopelessness. I guess I know a little of what you're feeling. It breaks my heart, I guess. Forgive me. There was a moment of silence, and then Sean and Connie exchanged glances. He had seen his mom and dad do the same thing, and knew they had suddenly arrived at a decision. Connie stood and asked, Elders, would you like some Ruobo tea? I know you don't drink regular tea, but I heard you can drink Ruobo tea. They accepted, and she disappeared into the kitchen. Sean cleared his throat. Please forgive me for being rude earlier. I didn't mean to be inhospitable. It's just that this is a hard time and we don't want to get tangled up in religious arguments right now. You see, I'm studying at the seminary to become an Anglican minister. My father is an Anglican minister, so you would be wasting your breath. I probably know more about Mormonism than you do, he added in a subdued but haughty tone. Connie already said you weren't interested, and we respect that. I just wanted to give Juanita a birthday gift. I have a little sister, and she reminds me of her. When I saw Juanita the first time, I guess it made me homesick. We'll be going soon and won't bother you again. At that moment, Connie returned with a tray. Please don't misinterpret our words. We do missionary work ourselves and know how hard it can be. I appreciate the beautiful picture you drew and you're remembering her birthday. It's just that we are very uncomfortable with our lives and we're, we are very comfortable with our lives and are happy with our involvement in our church. We are just not in the mood to have a religious debate at this time. Perhaps sometime later, after her voice caught and she busied herself with the tea, 
Sam sipped the tea. She had brewed it lightly, and the delicate scent seemed to echo her fragile feelings. Unexpectedly, Sean broke the silence. His voice was searching, almost reverent. You said your brother died when he was two years old. Did he have a disease too? No, he drowned in an irrigation ditch. We didn't find him until he had been dead for over an hour. I bet your parents were devastated, Connie sympathized. But you said you waited and felt hopeless at times. Why was that? Sam's mind tumbled about, groping for the right way to explain what had happened. He couldn't think of a way to explain it without interjecting his faith into the explanation. My mother pulled Jimmy from the irrigation ditch. She and my dad gave him an artificial respiration for over an hour. After that, he was still not breathing, and my mother asked a neighbor friend, a man who was an elder in our church, to give Jimmy a blessing. Immediately after that, he took a breath. Oh, Connie said. Then he lived? He lived for exactly two weeks. He was in a coma during that time, but his body seemed normal. One evening, my mom and dad were holding his hands, and he opened his eyes and told my mom he loved her. When he told her that, my mom thought he would be fine, but shortly thereafter, he passed away. Sean frowned. Why do you suppose the blessing didn't work to keep him alive? It seems odd that it only worked for two weeks, he commented a little harshly. My family feels that Heavenly Father wanted Jimmy to come home to him because he could have, because he could have let him stay. There was nothing wrong with his body. He didn't die because of the drowning. He just went home to be with Heavenly Father. I think he let Jimmy live the extra two weeks to soften the blow to my family. Sean remained unconvinced. Suppose it wasn't the blessing at all. Suppose it was that the artificial respiration finally worked and the blessing had nothing to do with it. I find it hard to believe that such miracles happen now, and even harder to swallow that a Mormon elder has any power to order the dead back to life. I don't mean to be heartless, but the whole thing is preposterous. Sean folded his arms across his chest and awaited Sam's reply. Sam was amazed that Sean could doubt such a blessing from Heavenly Father. It had never occurred to him that Jimmy's coming back to life might be anything other than a miracle wrought by the hand of God. His mind reeled at the suggestion that it was anything else. When Sean saw that Sam did not have an answer, he continued with a little more fervor. Furthermore, I think it's cruel of any religion to teach their members that miracles can happen if their faith is strong enough. When the miracles don't occur, it makes them think God doesn't love them, or that their faith is too weak. It cheats them out of true faith, which is to believe in Jesus Christ. Elder Tilly bridled a bit and leaned forward. But Christ and his apostles worked miracles. If miracles occurred in the primitive church, is there any reason they shouldn't happen in today's church? If they had God's power, shouldn't Christ's church have that same power? Miracles were given in olden times to proclaim Christ and to establish the truth of Christianity. It was not given to divert the minds from their faith in Christ to faith in their own miracles. Today we are only required to have faith in Christ. The miracles have already testified of Christ and have ceased. They will serve no purpose in our lives today. But, Elder Tilly began, however, Sam cut him off with a slight wave of his hand. Sean, we didn't come here to interfere with, with your faith or even tell you about my little brother. I came because I felt impressed to, to draw a picture of your beautiful little daughter. My faith, my beliefs, and my perspectives on these things are, are different from yours. I wish you well, and with your permission, we will leave, and I will pray for Juanita. Sam set his teacup aside and stood. Elder Tilly followed. They were standing on the front porch when the spirit moved within him. His face flushed and his heart pounded, but the peace came. He knew what he must say. He turned to Sean. I know there is a power that can heal your daughter. 
I hold that power, and my faith is strong enough to use it to that end. However, it isn't my faith that is the determining factor. It's yours. He shook both of their hands and left before another word was uttered. He heard the door slam as he and Elder Tilly walked down the sidewalk. Journal Entry March 29, 1974 Today we met with Juanita's parents, Connie and Sean Van, Van Doggen. They are fine people, but Sean is very rigid. I drew a picture of their daughter who was dying. I felt strongly that Heavenly Father would allow us to hear, heal her with the priesthood, but not until her parents have, had, have more faith. I believe that Sean was right to some extent about miracles. Miracles are seldom given as a witness. They more often come as a confirmation of faith in Christ than a source of it. This evening, I prayed with great strivings for Heavenly Father to allow us to use the Holy Priesthood to heal Juanita. I was startled when the Spirit plainly said that I could not. It further said that such a blessing would work as a condemnation to their souls because they would reject it. I was stunned but immediately felt impressed to ask Heavenly Father to allow us to heal their daughter in such a way that it would not be a witness to the parents. I heard nothing but silence from the heavens after that. Something else is happening. Elder Tilly is becoming beginning to keep quiet around me. We don't laugh and chat about simple things anymore. I can't tell if he resents me, is angry, or what. I try so hard to do what is right and be obedient to the voice of the Lord. I don't think he understands that. I sometimes feel as if he misinterprets my yearnings for obedience as a form of arrogance or phoniness. Tonight I was reading Mosiah 5 about King Benjamin's people were born again following his great discourse. I have decided to seek the rebirth. It came to me very strongly that the key to the rebirth is obedience. That they made a covenant to be obedient in all things in verse 5, and because of that covenant they were changed. I want to have this mighty change in order to serve the Lord with greater power. Three days before the Snodgrass's baptism, the zone leaders unexpectedly showed up at Sam and Elder Tilly's boarding house. The zone leaders went with them to their appointments. Sam and Elder Coleman, the senior zone leader, went together. That evening, they taught Tom and Linda the sixth discussion. The lesson began well, and the spirit was there, but it was rigid and given word for word from the memorized discussions. Sam was disappointed, and Tom and Linda wondered what had changed. They were used to a free-flowing spiritual experience with Sam and Elder Tilly. About halfway through the lesson, Sam could stand it no longer, and following a question by Tom, began explaining the plan of salvation. The zone leader interrupted him and returned to the sixth discussion. Sam waited patiently and then went back to the discussion to the degrees of glory. Tom had a particular question about his parents and where they were going to be after this life. They were not members of the church and he was troubled. For a few moments, Sam wondered if Elder Coleman would chastise him in front of their investigators or insist on returning to the memorized text, but he did not. When it became apparent that the discussion was permanently derailed, Elder Coleman relaxed and in time made several moving comments about the plan of salvation. He told of an experience he'd had when his grandmother died. She wasn't a member either, but he felt strongly that she would accept the gospel in the spirit world. The spirit was strong and testified to all present. In the end, they reconfirmed their determination to be baptized on the upcoming Friday, just three days away. Once they had regrouped at their boarding house, the four of them knelt in prayer and thanked Heavenly Father for the blessings of that day. Without warning, Elder Coleman announced that Sam was being transferred to uh, Germiston, a suburb of Johannesburg. He was to leave that evening at that very moment. A thousand thoughts assailed Sam simultaneously, especially the thought that he would not be able to attend, 
attend Tom and Linda's baptism. Second was that he would not be able to speak to them before he left, to wish them goodbye or to bear his testimony one more time. He would not be able to play music again with Tom. It was heartbreaking to him, and tears welled up in his eyes. They were at Tom and Linda's just a short time ago, and yet he had not been allowed to say goodbye. It didn't seem fair. He started to ask questions, belinquering his soul, but was cut short. As Elder Coleman answered, he seemed 12 feet tall, and Sam felt like a child again. Elder Coleman simply said, It's not my decision, nor within my power to change. Sam and Elder Coleman loaded his things into the VW bug and drove a short distance to the main road. As they came to a complete stop, Sam suddenly straightened in his seat. He gazed around as if lost, and a look of determination came over his face. Elder Coleman, we need to turn around. Did you forget something at the boarding? No, we have to go visit an investigator. Elder Tilly can handle that. It's in his hands now. Relax. He's a good elder, the zone leader replied. He steered the car onto the street. Sam grabbed the emergency brake handle between the sinks and yanked it. The car skidded to a stop. The zone leader turned to him with anger on his face. Look, Elder Mahoy, I'm the zone leader and I have instructions. What you did was dangerous and rebellious. Now let's let go of the emergency brake. We have a good hour's drive ahead of us. Elder Coleman, as we were sitting at that stop sign, I felt the spirit come over me and whisper that we needed to go give a little girl a blessing. It's someone we met while tracting. <clears throat> we haven't even given them a lesson yet, and I don't understand why we have to do it now, but I'm afraid if we don't, this little girl will die. This is not something I just thought up. It's what the Lord wants us to do. Please. The zone leader pondered Sam's words. He closed his eyes and said, Okay, we're here to serve the people. The transfer can wait. Now release the brake. Sam whispered, Thank you, and released the brake. They made a U-term, and Sam directed Elder Coleman to the tracting area. As they turned the corner toward 355, Sam was startled to see flashing lights. An ambulance was parked in the street outside the house. A half dozen other cars lined the street. Several of them were big Mercedes and other expensive cars. They quickly parked and hurried to the gate. A team of white-coated men were carrying the stretcher into the house. They didn't seem to be in a hurry. Sam and Elder Coleman followed. A large black woman sat on the front steps, rocking back and forth, moaning loudly. Every once in a while, she broke into mournful singing in her native tongue. Once inside, the elders saw that the small house was packed with weeping people. Sam noticed that two of them wore ministerial collars and were obviously consoling everyone. One of those with a collar was Sean. Sam quickly made his way toward Connie and Sean. As soon as Connie saw him coming, she broke away from her husband and made her way toward them through the press of people. Her face was, held a mixture of grief and frustration. It was almost as if she were angry with Sam. Where have you been? You gave me hope. I prayed and knew your words were true, but you didn't leave your name, phone number, or address. For weeks I hunted, watched every day as you walked past, waited. She buried her face in her hands and sobbed. Sam was grief-stricken. He had not considered the possibility that they actually might try to contact him. He had been waiting for the Holy Spirit to direct him back to them, but it had not. Sam wanted to scream, explain, and beg forgiveness, but Connie calmed herself. It isn't your fault, of course. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not thinking clearly right now. She waved her hand weakly as if brushing away the entire affair. At that moment, Sean came to her and put his arms around the, her trembling shoulders. He nodded toward the elders but said nothing. Sam introduced Elder Coleman, who shook their hands. Sean introduced his father, a senior minister in the Anglican Church, and they also shook hands. Please, tell me what has happened, Sam asked. By this time, the crowd had fallen silent and everyone in the room had turned toward them. Connie shrugged. 
There's not much to tell. My baby just keeps getting worse and worse. Tonight about 6 o'clock, she, she stopped breathing. She sobbed once, then recovered enough to continue. The doctor came and pronounced her. She couldn't bring herself to say it. Tears flowed down her cheeks, and she looked directly into Sam's eyes. She looked at him searchingly, but no sound escaped her lips. It was Sean who spoke next. Elders, thanks for coming, but this isn't a good time, as you can see. I'll have to ask you to excuse us. Sam felt Elder Coleman put a hand on his shoulder, and he started to leave, but once again he felt a hand on the middle of his back. This time, he did not try to figure out who it was. He stopped in his tracks. Can I see her just for a moment? Then we'll go. Sean opened his mouth to object, but before he could, Connie was nodding and taking him by the arm. She led him a short distance to a small bedroom and opened the door. The room was painted pink with ruffled curtains and a bedspread, and in the corner stood a pink crib, its side lowered. In the crib was a perfectly still small form. Sam stopped in the doorway and turned to Connie. Would it be alright if just you and I went in? She nodded and let him in, pushing the door closed after the faces of her husband and Elder Coleman, both of whom were voicing protests. Once inside, Sam turned to Connie. She looked into his face, tears streaking down her face. I believed, she said. For a while I believed what you said about your little brother, about the power to heal. I believed it with all my heart, but my faith was weak, and I'm afraid it's gone. My baby's dead now. A feeling of calm flowed over Sam. Even still, he struggled to find consoling words to tell her. He opened his mouth to speak to comfort her, to tell her some about how little children are saved by the atonement of Christ, to tell her about the better place her daughter had gone, but there was not. But that was not what came out. She isn't dead, Connie, just sleeping. I have come to awaken her. They both started at his words, Sam as much as Connie. Connie took a step back and looked from him to the crib. She put a hand to her mouth as if she would cry out and then lowered it. She slowly nodded and smiled. A feeling of peace came over Sam, and he walked to the crib. He looked down at the innocent little girl and felt tears of gratitude forming in his eyes. Slowly, he reached out and brushed her golden hair from her face, and then placed his hands on her head. Juanita, in the name of Jesus Christ, and by virtue of the Holy Melchizedek Priesthood, and according to his divine mercy, I call you back, Juanita. Come back to your mother. Amen. He lifted his hands from the small head, and when the tiny eyes remained closed, he felt the calm flow even stronger. <laughs> he took a step back and placed his hand on Connie's arm. Connie looked at him, a struggle of faith manifesting itself on her face. She looked down at her baby and smiled. Still as death, Juanita lay there, not moving. Sam turned to ward him and spoke the words... <laughs> No, Sam turned her toward him and spoke the words that firmed in his heart. Go tell them. Go tell the others she was only sleeping. Connie's face remained blank. Finally, she smiled weakly and nodded. She looked one more time at her baby and left the room, pulling the door closed behind her. As soon as it closed, Sam fell to his knees, praying earnestly. His prayer was not for the still form before him, but for her mother. Tears cascading down his face, he, and he waited, praying in mighty striving, such as a soul had never known before. It seemed as if silence passed over the room before the door. Then Sam's prayer was answered. He heard Connie's voice explaining. She was 
and then a long pause. She was only sleeping. A murmur of disbelief arose, and he sensed footsteps coming toward the door. Sam quickly stood on, on impulse, reached into the crib, and lifted the limp form into his arms. He was just turning as Sean burst into the room, a look of shock, anger, and disbelief on his face. His fists were bald, and he came towards Sam with violence written on his features. Get your vile hands off my daughter, he spewed. Connie quickly made her way around him and approached Sam. Sam leaned forward and gave her his precious bundle. As he did so, a small arm looped around Connie's neck. And a sleepy little voice said, Mama, why did you wake me up? I was sleeping. A cry of astonishment came from everyone except Sam and Connie. The words, the word was quickly passed that little Juanita had only been sleeping. As warmth followed sunshine, such relief and joy swept through the house. Connie and Sean were swept into the living room. Someone began singing and a baby laughed. Sam, alone in the small bedroom, fell to his knees, gratitude filling his soul to overflowing. After a moment, he felt a hand on his shoulder and looked up to see Connie, a look of solemnity on her face. Thank you, she said, her voice trembling, tears of joy streaming down her cheeks. Sam stood and said, To Heavenly Father. She was only sleeping. Connie nodded, a look of partial understanding in her red eyes. Sam joined Elder Coleman, who was waiting patiently in the hall. He smiled at Sam. He knew the child had only been sleeping, and Sam felt no need to tell him otherwise. They departed without further comment. No one noticed them go. Journal entry, April 1st, 1974. April Fool's Day. I've been transferred. On the way out of the town, we gave a little girl a blessing. The veil between life and death is thin. Heavenly Father saw fit to honor her mother's faith and awaken her from death. It was a precious experience, and no one I, no, and one I would not have had if it had not been obedient to the still small voice. Everyone except her mother and I believes that the child was only sleeping. Miracles are not given to force belief, only to bless those who believe. It is interesting that Heavenly Father honored her faith, yet I doubt that she associates this miracle with his true church. Perhaps in time she will come to understand what truly happened tonight. What an interesting April Fool's experience. Everyone in that house witnessed a miracle, yet no one recognized it. I realize now that this is what I requested. I asked Heavenly Father to heal this child through her mother's faith, without it being a condemnation, condemning witness to the child's parents. What a sweet, sweet blessing it is. I marvel at his mercy, love, and gentle kindness. With all my soul, I thank him for allowing me this precious blessing. It is three days before Tom and Linda's baptism. I hate missing it. I can't even say goodbye. I hope Elder Tilly can make them understand. I love them and will miss them terribly. I don't even have their mailing address. I never thought to ask them. Elder Tilly promised he would write and tell me about their baptism and give me their address. I will miss playing music with Tom. And poor... Elder Tilly will have to go back to tracting. Tom and Linda have had a marvelous effect on my life, and I hope I have blessed theirs. I'm going to Germiston, about an hour outside of Johannesburg. I will be junior companion to South African missionary Elder Beesler. I don't know too much about him, but I hear he's a goof-off. The, the one thing I could not bear would be to waste this precious time. There is too much to do. Too many miracles need to be performed, and too many wonderful people need the gospel. 
My soul is on fire, and every thought is to bring glory, honor, and souls unto the Lord. Blessed be his name.